Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Your index might prove helpful to you here. This is the third in what are called the pastoral epistles. It's just to the right of 1st and 2nd Timothy. It is last but not least in the pastoral epistles, but it is often treated that way. Proof is how often in the last few weeks in discussing this book, I said Timothy instead of Titus and was corrected by my friends. So if during this sermon I say Timothy instead of Titus, I'll correct myself. But if I do it a second time, I'm just leaving. We'll walk right out of the room and I'm sorry in advance. Well, today does begin a three Sunday series whose title is this book's constant refrain, A Church of Sound Doctrine and Good Deeds. A Church of Sound Doctrine and Good Deeds. Consider that every impressive thing has a kind of order to it, an order that corresponds to the kind of thing that it is. The organizing principle of the solar system is the gravitational force of the sun. Without it, there is only chaos. The the organizing principle of a modern city is the grid, and without it, disorientation. The organizing principle of an essay, the thesis, and without it, confusion. Well, what is the organizing principle of the church? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or as Paul says over and over again in this book, the truth, sound doctrine. And as the grid orders a city for transportation or a thesis, an essay for communication, sound doctrine orders the church for good works, which is Paul's shorthand for the whole life lived unto the glory and praise of God. And like the spinning and swirling and ordering of planets is an impressive sight of power and beauty and wonder, so is the church in her sound doctrine when it makes visible good works and impressive display of her Lord and his glory. And so in chapter one, Paul writes to Titus to put the church at Crete in order. Crete, a place famous for lies about God and godless lives. For Titus, putting the church in order will involve setting up shop and cleaning house, a message urgent for the church in every age. Think of a human body needs sustenance and nourishment and good food, and it also needs medicine to expel trouble and contaminants. He needs to clean house and set up shop. Put the church in order. Let's read together Titus chapter one. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. 
They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Well, most things in life don't put themselves in order. You have to put them in order. Houses are like this. Garages are like this. Schedules are like this. Life is like this. And maybe you're here as part of a New Year's resolution to get your life in order by putting God at the center. And we are so glad you're here to do that, to labor in doing that with us. With so many things, it seems there are forces at work to undo order. And so it is with the church. Human sin is a constant force. And so Titus has an important job to put things in order for the church at Crete. But this is more than a work order from a boss. It's a letter as from a father to a son. And so verses one, we have a greeting, an introduction, a little to and from Paul to Timothy. Titus, that's one. That's one. Uh, sorry. Paul starts with his I Paul starts with his identity. His self-understanding begins with his God understanding. Verse 1, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is God's servant. And more specifically, as a servant, he is an apostle, which is a messenger. Apostle, the word that was given to that small band of men, their official title by Jesus Christ to establish the church. Paul starts with his identity. He knows who he is and he conveys it. He also states his purpose for ministry. Paul is God's servant and apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And notice the twin themes and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Truth, not general truth, but specific truth about Jesus Christ and his gospel, truth about how to get from here to heaven from condemnation to salvation, the truth of Jesus' life and death and resurrection for the salvation of sinners. And godliness, what this kind of truth brings about in the lives of those who personally know it and the God who gives it, what life looks like when that life belongs to God. The accent on the first, in the first chapter is on the truth that leads to godliness. But the accent on the chapters two and three which follow is on the godliness to which that truth leads. In chapter two for a foretaste or a, a, a projection, Paul will tell Titus to teach the church how sound doctrine leads to good deeds, godliness, specifically in the sphere of the home, in the common everyday roles, relationships, and responsibilities of Christian people. And in chapter three, Paul tells Titus to remind the church of their responsibility in the sphere of the world to obey governing authorities cheerfully and to energetically pursue the good of the world as an evidence of the truth worked in their hearts, God's grace to have saved them. Gospel truth is the foundation for eternal life and for life. And Paul's purpose is more than mere conversion but mature conversion, or we might say evangelism and discipleship. And his follow-up strategy entails the establishment of healthy churches on the island of Crete. Next, Paul sets the context for his ministry. He speaks of hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. The hope of the gospel truth extends into eternity future and it was promised in eternity past. The context for the church and our life together in this moment is eternity in both directions. That's how, that's how big this is that Paul is writing about and that we're hearing about here. And how solid is it? Well, its origin is the God who never lies. Why does he say the God who never lies? Because Crete is famous for lies. It's stacked deep with lies, including lies about God and lies that destroy people. And so humanity on this island is a kind of shipwrecked humanity. And you may feel that way in this world today. We feed on lies from the world about God and about us and about life. And maybe you've taken the bait and it's hurt you. And you've hurt others living according to them. Take heart. Paul went to Crete and God's word comes to you this morning. 
Finally, Paul distills the work of his ministry. Through what means must God bring this awesome, big, solid message into the world? Verse three. At the proper time, God manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God, our savior. It's preaching. Words from the mouths of mere mortals to bring eternity into time and to the island of Crete. Preaching took Paul everywhere. It's how he came into Titus. And it's why he left Titus on the island of Crete, whom he calls in verse four, my true child in a common faith. My true child in a common faith. So Paul writes this introduction for more than to inform Titus, but to impart to Titus a way of thinking about his life and about his God and about his work. And so it did for the Cretan church, which would have listened in on this and read this themselves. And so it does for us today. A letter from a father to a son, two men of the same faith, the same grace, and the same peace because they have the same God and Father and because they have the same Savior in Jesus Christ. That's Paul to Titus. Now, verses 5 through 16, Titus to Crete, Titus to Crete, Paul cuts right to the chase. Titus, verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Before Paul sent this letter to Titus, Paul sent Titus to Crete. And it's easy to gloss over, at least for me, geographical references like this. Some will nerd out on this kind of thing to great profit and hopefully not miss the meaning of what's going on here. It's always helpful to know our geography. Guys like me will generally be too confident that they don't need to explore the geography and always be surprised when they do. The location, what's called the historical context, better. So let's talk a little bit about Crete. This is, after all, where Titus was sent, and it's because of the job that he has to do there that Paul writes him this letter. If you recognize the name Crete, it's because their reputation does precede them. Several of you this week said, oh yeah, the Cretans. Uh, That's where it comes from. Well, it is. And so we find Cretan in the Urban Dictionary and in the Webster's Dictionary. Now, if a preacher ever pulls out the Webster's Dictionary to define a biblical word, I don't know what you should do. It's it's not a good idea. Webster was not a first century name. And Webster's Dictionary is not useful for defining biblical terms. But this is a little different. I just want to show you how the name is stuck around, how their reputation precedes them. Webster. Cretan, often offensive, a stupid, vulgar, or insensitive person. I like this. A clod. Examples of Cretan? That Cretan is constantly forwarding emails filled with sexist jokes. Okay, the Urban Dictionary is a little shorter here. Cretan, idiot. (laughs) So the Cretans were not likely forwarding emails with sexist jokes, but you get the idea. These were foul people. Crete was an island of a particularly chaotic and disordered humanity. Interesting, the island of Crete was famous for not having any wild animals, which was a plus, but the people were actually called evil beasts, and Paul calls them evil beasts. And that might sound a little insensitive, even if it was true, except that it's exactly how they described themselves. Look at verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, quote, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. They were hard on themselves in the first century urban dictionary. Paul quoted it. But it was true. And here we have what's called the Cretan liar paradox. Cretans are always liars, said a Cretan. So when Paul says this testimony is true, it's a little tongue-in-cheek. He's saying that Cretan doesn't lie. But it does sound a little insensitive of Paul, does it not, to speak this way about them even in their own words? Isn't this a little racist of Paul? Race is an ill-defined term in our day, but you get the question. Isn't Paul making a sweeping, discriminating, judgmental statement about these island people? 
Is this not inconsistent with the spirit of neighbor and enemy love, impartiality, and even common decency toward people who share our common humanity? No, it is not. And some of you may know racism as victims and others as victimizers. The former must look to Christ who suffered himself and the latter must look to Christ who suffered for sinners of every kind of person, even racists and repent. But all of us should want to know if the Bible affirms, stirs up this kind of cruelty that might come to mind. No, Paul is not a racist. He's a missionary who understands Titus's context and what it's going to take to order a healthy church in that place. And we can learn a few things from him, but we'll have to think more carefully than we're used to thinking about these things in a soundbite age of blurry thinking. So as we get to know the Cretans, let me offer several distinctions that Paul assumes here. First, he assumes a distinction between individuals and groups. Is he talking about every Cretan? Well, no. He planted a church there and fully expects, as we'll see, Titus to find and appoint elders who are qualified as godly men on that island, Cretans. It's true that God made us in his image and therefore we're social creatures. And so the Bible speaks of many, many different kinds of groups with general descriptions. Yet while the world makes everything about group identity, the gospel addresses us as individuals before God. And so Paul does. The elders that will be appointed will be evaluated on the merit of their individual character. Paul also assumes a distinction between color Sorry, culture and color. Culture and color. Or we could say the patterns of a group's thinking and living and blood or genetics. Paul is critical of the former culture, not the latter at all. Keep in mind, there never was a greater antagonism between two groups of people in the history of the world than Jews and Gentiles. And guess what Paul is? A Jew. Guess who Titus is? The one who shares a common faith. The one who is a child to Paul, Paul a father as to a son. Titus is a Gentile. And so Paul can say, sorry, in Jesus Christ, the barrier was broken down so that Paul will say there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. That is with respect to salvation, there is no distinction. All who share Abraham's faith are children of Abraham. Which leads us to another distinction a distinction between local and universal human history. This is underneath Paul's letter and all of his thinking. God's image is universal to humanity because we all go back to creation. Human sin is common to all humanity since we all go back to Adam. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which is a humbling thing. Paul later in Titus will say, for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Yet he saved us not according to works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. The playing field is level with the gospel. The difference in groups of people is because God confused our languages at Babel. And as a result, sin's universal presence has many localized expressions, flavors, looks, and feels. But it's all the same problem. And as there's a universal history, so a universal future for every individual Cretan will account to God, not for the sins common to his or her own people, but for their own sins in Adam. We are not reduced to our local identities. We are all together humans. Also, a distinction between external and internal forces. Every group experiences external forces, past and present, good and bad, that happen to them and shape their life. But internal forces such as habits, ways, attitudes towards family, work, children, money, women, truth-telling, lying, are realities determined by the group. And Paul dignifies the Cretans by addressing them as accountable, responsible people before God, ultimately responsible as every human is to live before God. Which leads to a distinction between moral and amoral cultural differences. Moral and amoral cultural differences. Clearly, there are many differences between groups of people and places that are neither here nor there in terms of right or wrong. Food, dress, Music, the diversity within the world is actually 
a praise to God, a reflection of his glory in, our, in his image and his people. And for this reason, Paul can say, to the Jew, I became a Jew. But Paul makes, unflinchingly makes, boldly makes, moral evaluations. He calls the Cretans liars, and that's because they were famous for lying, which is wrong. And they had wicked, loveless motives, and both of these problems leaked their way into the church. They taught for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They didn't care if they upset the lives of people and families. They wanted what they wanted. He calls them evil beasts because what else are you going to call them? Their minds and their consciences were defiled, he says, characterized by foolishness, malice, envy, and hate. They're insubordinate, he says. On the island of Crete, every man was an island unto himself. Then he calls them lazy gluttons. In pride, some in the Greek world sought the highest form of life through the life of the mind, but these folks lived from the gut, affirming and pursuing and indulging the passions of the body like animals, beasts. So Paul says they were unfit for this reason for any good work. Yikes. Now, it might be easy to say these things from the pulpit, reading the Bible, and in this building, but it seems that when we step outside and in the, in the course of life, it is difficult, I feel this, to make moral evaluations of people and groups. This, is, this kind of talk is hard for us in the West today, and I think we all feel it in different ways. Implied cultural superiority feels hypocritical in light of our culture and nation's historic sins. Who are we? Implied moral superiority feels presumptuous because of an atmosphere of moral relativism. How can you know anyways or tell anyone else what's right and wrong? But this is not real humility. Don't be fooled. It is just another form of cultural superiority. Get this. Self-justification through non-judgmentalism. And we have so valued the perception of innocence from judgmentalism that we are unable to make a judgment. But in the end, even the perception of judgment, making even the perception of judgmentalism taboo is just a sneaky way that in sin, our culture seeks to neutralize guilt and shame and even the judgment of God. For we can feel good about not judging others while not being judged ourselves and understanding how these things work in the culture that we're in is important for understanding the kind of Cretan context in which our church exists and lives but the gospel praise God frees us it frees us from the accusation of judgmentalism by universalizing the problem of sin and freeing us from the slavery to cultural rules on language. And so to speak frankly and even passionately and even a little non-PC about good and bad and the difference and right and wrong and the difference is not in contradiction with Christian humility but is a way of loving God and neighbor this doesn't mean that we call people evil beasts. Paul was talking to Titus about how to establish a healthy church on the island of Crete. Paul himself, when he was in Athens and provoked in his spirit by the idols around him in false worship, was yet winsome and persuasive and engaging and even respectful. So with Paul, we can appreciate the beauty of this world's diversity without worshiping diversity, and we can critique culture wherever humans are found, including our own, without being proud. There's a distinction between moral and amoral differences between groups, and he feels free to talk about the moral problems on Crete. A distinction between enslaving and slaving and saving religion gets to the saddest part of what was going on on the island of Crete. False religion. They're famous for lying, right? Well, that goes back to a pretty stupendous lie about a lie. Compounding lies. They claimed in the ancient world that Zeus was born on their island, immortal, and died on their island and that they had Zeus's tomb. So they lied about the pervading false religion of their day and were famous for it. Always liars, they were called. These people needed the gospel. And so Paul went to Crete for the same reason that he went to other places that were maybe less hard, but hard in different ways. Rome, Ephesus, and Corinth. 
As the problem of sin is universal, so is the possibility of salvation in Christ. In the end, there really are only two groups, two races, the race of Adam and Christ's new humanity. The world would pull us apart in one sense and wants to push us together in another, but Christianity allows us to preserve the beauty of diversity and at the same time provide unity for humanity because God himself is a perfect unity in diversity as our triune God. And so we can recognize in Paul a distinction between discrimination, we might say, and discernment, or we could say hate and moral evaluation. Murderous, irrational, proud hatred over fellow humans is the story of history. And if you've been treated cruelly on the basis of what God made beautiful, then that was wrong and he saw it. He'll make it right. And I'm sorry that that happened or happens to you. And if you have treated or are treating people cruelly on the basis of what is beautiful to God, then repent and surely find no comfort in Paul's direct words here, for you're nothing like him. Everyone, though, know this. Paul's moral evaluation of the Cretans is not hate, but love for God, for it does not lead to the rejection of a people, but to the redemption of a people at great cost to himself. He went there with the gospel. And assuming all of these distinctions, and here is the payoff for all our work, it's because of the gospel that Paul can call Cretans liars and yet call them to the truth of the gospel. The truth from a God who never lies. And that gospel transforms Cretans, liars, into truth lovers and truth tellers. And it's because of the gospel that Paul can call Cretans evil beasts and at the same time call them two lives of godliness, self-control, dignity, love, purity, integrity, and courtesy, all words in his book. And it's because of the gospel that Paul can call Cretans lazy gluttons and yet call them two energetic zeal for good works, which is also how he describes them the Cretan church, good works in every sphere of life. Titus and the church, you see, must discern what's going on in the ground of their world if they're to establish a healthy church and protect it from the intrusion of the atmosphere and attitudes of Crete. It's a place of disordered, chaotic humanity. Paul needs to get this to start the church there, and Titus needs to get this if he'll strengthen the church there. Clear vision. Moving on, what does the Cretan church need if she will be a church of sound doctrine and good works in an unsound and dare we say bad, disordered, lying, evil, lazy, and gluttonous culture? What does the church need? No Christian is made holy in a moment and so we must assume that every Cretan convert who's a part of the church has a little bit of Crete in them, even a lot of Crete in them. How does God sanctify his church? How will the church not look a lot like the surrounding culture? Well, the first answer is God's truth, which accords with godliness. God's truth, which leads to godliness. But how is God's truth brought into the life of the church and brought to bear on God's people? The answer is elders. Elders, God's mechanism for moving truth into his people which is why elders are the first order of business in ordering the church at Crete. Titus must first appoint elders to teach, verses five through nine. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So not a logo, not a website, not the right real estate. There's no mention of location, strategic location principles in the New Testament. Not even the right music guy or evangelism strategy. Elders. And this is the setting up shop part of Titus's job. What are elders? Well, this is one of three words that refer to the same office, same role in the church. Pastor or overseer is also used in the New Testament. If apostles are the foundation for the church and if the church, the people of the church are the bricks that make up the church, then elders might be the framing 
everywhere supporting and equipping the church with strength and for unity. What's Paul's first priority in addressing the need for elders? Meetings, agendas, division of labor. It's so easy to focus on that stuff. But it's qualifications. It's the kind of men Titus is to look for. And what kind of men are to be appointed elders? The kind with extravagant visions. The kind who have made special pilgrimages. The kind who have endured certain tortures. Nope. Maybe it's the kind that have strategic vocational skill sets. Like one church I came across years ago that said, in addition to the New Testament's qualifications, we also require that elders have executive experience. Ugh, I don't like that at all. That's a bad deal. And is it certain vocational skill sets? Are those required? What kind of men was Titus to seek? Well, let's look. And in Paul's descriptions, we can, description, we can break it down into about three parts, three areas, and just imagine the kind of men, the kind of people that Paul, that God makes out of Cretans and that Paul fully expects God to create off the ground at Crete. In the first place, he must be faithful in the home. Faithful in the home. Verse six, if everyone, anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The souls of his wife and children are first because they are first in his responsibility before God. With respect to his wife, he should be a one-woman man. If Paul meant to exclude single men, which he was, or categorically divorced men, there would have been other ways for him to express this. Here Paul is saying that with respect to women, he must be a faithful man. If he's married, not a flirt, not an adulterer. If he's single, pure, faithful. And as for his children, Paul says that they must be believing. We should not hear this as a requirement that children are converted. The parallel text in 1 Timothy 3 doesn't indicate that. Put them together, the picture is that of faithful children. Faithful as children. So take heart, parents. Children are moldable. Orderly children are something that can be and should be labored for. The behavior of a man's young children does reflect on the man. And I say young because there is a difference in the way that a man's young children or older children bear on his qualification for an elder. If an elder has a child who's 25 and wayward and rebellious, it may be that that man's failure of leadership in the home, if it's owing to that, that goes way back and is still present, would bear on his qualification. But the Lord has to convert the soul and children who don't believe may end up all over the place in terms of godliness or with respect to God. But young children can be led and young children can be trained and young children can be kept in order. And so young children are a reflection on a man's qualification and godliness. His leadership among his own family is a testing ground for his leadership in God's. Well, leadership is directly related to his character which refers, which leads us to our second area of qualification. He must be faithful in his character, verses seven through eight. And he gives us a sharp picture here using a string of negative and positive descriptors. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but he must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. These qualities mark the difference between a man for whom God is God and a man who is God unto himself, a man who is being conformed into the image of Christ and a man who is like his father, Adam, a man who belongs ultimately to heaven and a man whose home is ultimately the island of Crete. The man who is God unto himself, the cultural Cretan, is arrogant because he exalts himself, quick-tempered because time in the world exists to serve him, a drunkard because his passions are his to fulfill, violent because everyone answers to him and offenses are his to satisfy in terms of his own sense of justice, greedy for gain because he never has enough. This kind of man has no time for holiness or hospitality. 
because they don't match his ultimate aim in life. But for the man for whom God is God, God's glory has rooted out arrogance, for he knows himself properly because he knows God properly. God's patience has rooted out a quick temper, for we're objects of God's exceeding patience. God's all-satisfying love has rooted out intoxication, for God has filled himself with us by his spirit. And God's promise of future judgment rules out violence, for God will settle all wrongs. And God's riches in Christ and the reward of the kingdom mean that this man is content with his lot because he has enough in Christ. So properly oriented toward God and others, this man does have time for things like hospitality and holiness because that's what his time and life are for. He shows hospitality, his home, an indispensable tool in showing God's people his love for them and in listening to them and speaking God's word. He's a lover of good, his mind renewed so that what is really pure is really pure and good to him and not the other way around. He's self-controlled, his passions controlled by a greater passion to honor the Lord. And he's upright since his life is renewed after righteousness and truth, holy since he belongs to a holy God and disciplined since his life is ordered according to the glory and word of God. What Titus is looking for here is perfect men. Thankfully, no, he's not. But it sure sounds like it, does it not? If he was requiring absolute perfection, that would rule out certainly any Christian from Crete and certainly any Christian on planet Earth ever. Minus Christ. What Paul is saying is this, sanctification is a process and some are more conformed to Christ than others and those who would lead the church in following Christ must themselves be following and be tested in following Christ well. So think progression, not perfection. But let's not let that take the weight out of the list for us. For someone who's preaching this as an elder, the fact that perfection is not exactly described here does not permit infinite flexibility. If I or Ron or Ken or Ryan or Clint or Tim Bradley or Tim Ragsdale or Nathan get into a fight on the street or strike one another or get drunk or lose our tempers or flirt with a woman, not our wife or our children, run off the rails, all of that is a reason for questioning qualification. The office does not, it's not defined by those who are in it. It's defined by God. It's his office for his church and we're stewards. And this is where the umbrella qualification Paul gives is key. Did you notice it? He says, above reproach, above reproach twice. That is, he is above being charged of wrong. So how can you know your elders are qualified elders? Well, knowing us is helpful. We need to seek to know the sheep and you need to seek to know your elders. Seek elders out to know them by name and be known by name. It is difficult in a larger church. Um, we work on that. We ask you to work on that. There is no litmus test, but there is testing. Our process into eldership includes an examination of character and a year process where the name of a candidate is before you and you can come to the board, the elders, with a, an issue with character if you see it. So know this passage as we bring elder candidate names to you. And our service as elders entails a three times annual accountability report with about 50 questions that fall out of this passage here in application to life. We complete these things, our wives read our reports and we share them with the group and then we do one-on-one -on -one lunches to drill down a little deeper and ask good questions and pray for one another and help one another. And if all this makes you glad you're not an elder, this is actually what's required of every Christian. You see, it's not required that you meet these qualifications to be a Christian. But these are the kinds of things that your Christianity, the truth, which accords with godliness, produces. And those who would lead the church must meet these qualifications. Elders must be faithful in the home, faithful in their character. A third area is reflected in our process into eldership and accountability. And it's not exactly in the same way required of every Christian. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. He's a man of sound doctrine who is able to teach 
sound doctrine. This means that he must hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught, trusting it because he trusts the God who never lies. Trusting the word, he must be able to instruct others. He gets and can get across God's word in ways that make it more clear and not confusing. This is the kind of man elder Titus is to appoint as an elder. Why is Paul saying this to Titus? We might ask. Obvious, he needs to know the qualifications, but are we sure? Isn't this something that he was sent to Crete to do? And wouldn't he know what these qualifications are and what they entail? And yes, Titus needs to hear it again. He's on an island geographically, but he should not be in an island pastorally. The island needs more than Titus, and Titus needs partners in the work. And all of us need to be told again what our job is, and the harder and the more high stakes the job, the more important the reminder, Titus, Put the place in order. Appoint elders. Don't forget the main thing. First things first. But it's not like Titus was considering the appointment of drunks or brawlers or adulterers. You see, Paul wrote this to Titus in order that the church at Crete might overhear as well. This letter strengthened Titus's authority and helped pave the way for these important appointments. For many, no doubt, want to hold the office of leadership who were not qualified or who were themselves false teachers with wrong motives. Everyone needs to hear this, and so we all need to hear this. Elders must have clear heads to teach God's truth. In addition to character and their care for the family, they must have clear heads to teach God's truth, and they must also have firm backbones to rebuke when that truth is contradicted. They must be nice, they must be gentle, but they must be able to teach and they must be able to, when it's needed, to rebuke. Which leads us to Titus's second job, and this is the cleaning house part. We've seen Titus set up shop, now he's to clean house. Paul says, Titus, appoint elders, and with your elders, verses 10 through 16, silence empty talkers. Silence empty talkers. Verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. Titus needs to know the truth and needs to understand the particular falsehoods surrounding the church, infiltrating the church, and threatening his church. And what are they? Well, we don't get a careful explanation of what those falsehoods were, but we get a hint in verse 10, the circumcision party. And what kind of horrible sounding party is that? Well, the circumcision party is short for that group of professing Christians, professing Christians who are requiring of other Christians adherence to particular Jewish laws under the old covenant for salvation or God's favor, including circumcision. In other words, lying about what God requires for salvation and for his people. They are, verse 14, devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. We're not exactly sure what the substance of the Jewish myths are or the commands, but we know that it was in effect an adding to what God has said. And is that a big deal, you might ask? I mean, more the commands the merrier as long as the commands that God gave are kept, right? Well, not if the commands are from hell. It's what Satan and Eve were doing in Genesis 3 and what Adam watched happen, what led to condemnation and death, the addition to God's word, which we only do when we don't trust that his word is enough. When we only do when we think we're wiser than God. Put God's words into God's mouth. Speak for him. That's why Paul circumcised Timothy, but not Titus, because of the meaning that circumcising Titus would do have in the context to affirm the requirement of keeping Old Testament laws. So the Cretans were legalists, adding to what God had commanded, either for salvation or for Christian maturity. But if you've been paying good attention, you should wonder how legalism could creep up and thrive on an island like Crete of all places. Crete. Have I gotten Crete wrong or am I getting the legalism thing wrong? Because it doesn't seem like both of these would work in the same place. But that's where we have an important insight. For you see, legalism is a form of laziness. Liars love speculation in addition because the truth is too boring. Legalism settles for measurable, partial, external, and seemingly humanly achievable holiness far short of the internal whole self-transformation God works by his spirit in Christ. 
There are plenty of convictional teetotalers who are cruel husbands. This is how Cretans, who are famous for lying and laziness, can actually gravitate toward a kind of legalism. It's a half-hearted Christ-following, pridefully cloaked in the appearance of spiritual seriousness and effort. Now, the whole circumcision bit might sound a bit foreign to us, but it's not as removed as you might think. Jewish myths, circumcision party type teaching does exist today. You're hearing a Jewish myth when someone suggests that Jesus Christ did not fulfill all of the expectations of the old covenant. And therefore you must, for example, be circumcised or keep this or that feast or this or that dietary requirement. The old covenant was a package that is now obsolete with the new covenant and the coming of Christ. There were commands in the old covenant that are instructive for us, all of it instructive for us in leading us to Christ. The commands reflecting God, the nature of humanity, and many of them having their root, obviously, in creation. The command not to murder had its root in what human beings are, made in God's image, which transfers to us. Christians should not murder. But the old covenant under Moses as a package is gone. It's obsolete, it's eclipsed, it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so if ever you're required to keep something in the Old Testament as a matter of earning God's favor or maintaining faithful Christianity, then you might be hearing a Jewish myth. It had a Gnostic impulse to it. Gnosticism being that sort of pervasive first, second century religion, different iterations of it, but was sort of infatuated with the secret, the special. Sometimes God's plain truth is just too boring. And so we need the special teacher, the special book, the special teaching to feel like we've really got an inside track on things. Watch out for myths, speculations. But if Jewish myths aren't a problem for you, then the commandments of people may very well be. We love to make up commandments, commandments on video games, schooling, about music, food, and about anything. In fact, we tend to make up strong and specific commands on things precisely where God has not spoken or been specific. We don't have a video game system in our house. And I don't care if my kid plays video games at other people's houses. And as long as it's not bad video games, we trust people. But that's not because God said it. That's because I said it and I'm dad. The command is for me to be a father to my kids. There's all kinds of space for me to make these decisions and those decisions to try to get us where we're trying to go. And so I just decided I don't want to in my house for now, maybe later, who knows. But my kids will not, should not pick up any sense from dad that those who are in with God don't have video game systems and those who are out do. When I was a youth minister, I heard... I have memories of very harsh conversations and speech of kids toward one another and about one another in the youth ministry that are certainly extensions of the things that they were hearing from mom and dad. Be very careful in your parenting and your living that where you have a particular way of working out your Christianity that is not prescribed by God in his word, that it's a function of your wise application of scripture and not God's word itself. And do not make third order issues primary gospel issues. Be very careful. The commandments of people are tempting. So how do we expel this poison? What is the medicine for this sickness? Well, the medicine is, in a word, rebuke. Rebuke. It's hard to give. It's hard to take. It's absolutely necessary. And it works both to cure those who are God's elect and remove those aren't. The rebuke, Paul says, should be a sharp rebuke, not unclear, but clear, instructive. They're to teach the word of God, the elders are, and to rebuke those who contradict it. It's redemptive, that they may be sound in their faith. He actually believes that those who are teaching false doctrine could be corrected and helped and brought to soundness of faith. It's progressive. In chapter three, he's going to say, rebuke them once. If they keep going, rebuke them twice. If they keep going, put them out of the church. There's a process Here, it's protective, it protects soundness of words. There's not good teaching of truth if there's not clear uh, clarification against error. And so Cretan Christianity had its problems because of where it was at, in particular problems because of where it's at, and so does Western Christianity. Has certain problems because of where it's at and where we're at, as the value system of the surrounding world creeps in. But praise God 
that he has come to us as he has come to Crete. So that out of our choice-worshiping culture, God forms a church as a people submitted to his will. So trust his trustworthy word. And out of our celebrity-worshiping culture, God forms his church as a people who make much of him and of Jesus Christ. So trust his trustworthy word. And out of our culture of chronological snobbery, it's been called, where new is always better and cool is always new, God forms a church as a people who love old and often uncool truths and ways of living. So trust is trustworthy word. And out of our culture of compartmentalization, which likes God and Christ to be one of many lifestyle choices. I had a high school teacher and history teacher say this. I see God here and I see work here and other things here. And uh, I don't have time for all these things. I don't always have time for God. And I felt awesome. I said, wow, Mr. Robottom, I kind of see God as like the box around all of it. See, God and the church aren't a, are the context for all of life. I was proud of myself as a 17-year-old in that moment. We prayed for Mr. Robottom. It came up because we were talking about the Lord and the downtime in the class. But out of our compartmentalizing culture, he makes a church who make him and his church the context for all of life. And out of our culture that worships courtesy at the expense of honesty, as we've discussed, we can say the hard things and even say them in order to say lovingly the saving things, the saving gospel. So we're not afraid of the truth which saves. So trust is trustworthy word. We live in a culture that lies to us all the time. And you may have been lied to about God. Take heart. This word is true. And the God who wrote it does not lie. It really is true that Jesus lived and died and was raised for sinners. And that salvation, total forgiveness of sins, is available to those who come to him by faith. And if you'd say, oh, I'm just a Cretan. Well, so are the rest of us. And God sent his messenger to Crete and he's brought his message to you today. So through faith, grace, peace can be yours too. Crete, you see, is what happens when you put a bunch of human beings in sin on an island. But the church is what happens when the gospel goes there and God is at work as he is here. So yes, we canceled church last week due to natural forces. But natural forces or cultural forces are no match for the supernatural force of sound doctrine, the gospel, to establish the church fit for good works, for whom all things are pure because she knows the God she professes, a radiant display of the gospel from the trash heap human soil of Crete. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word which makes us, which sustains us, which transforms us so that we might with our lives reflect the beauty and the wonder and the power of God and your gospel in good deeds. A whole life lived unto your glory. This is not something that we would have sought if you did not seek us, your elect. This is not something we could even achieve in any measure were you not at work. It's your word that does the work. May your word be preeminent in our church and in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen.